Hey, ongoingness people, welcome back to another episode. It's your host Jenny here, and I'm not going to do a creative prompt this week because I don't feel like it, and that's what happens when you don't get paid to do a project. You just get to decide what you feel like doing that week. So, without further ado, I'm going to go straight into our guest, who I'm super excited to introduce. This week, it's Shannon Price, who is an art design and fashion curator, historian, and educator with extensive leadership experience within cultural and academic institutions. Shannon recently moved back to her hometown of Oakland, California after 20 years in New York City, where her most recent position was at Parsons slash The New School, where she served as the Director of External Partnerships and Cultural Affairs. She developed global, innovative partnerships in private and nonprofit sectors aligned with the mission of education, driven by social justice and sustainability. Prior to that, Shannon worked through multiple roles at Pratt Institute, acting assistant dean of the School of Design and assistant chair and associate professor in the fashion department. Before entering education, Shannon spent over a decade at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, otherwise known as the Met, as the Associate Research Curator in the Costume Institute, where she collaborated with curators on annual blockbuster exhibitions and related publications. As part of her role there, she enriched the college and high school public programming and elevated overall departmental educational collaborations in pursuit of more inclusivity socioeconomically and accessibility to people with disabilities. Shannon is currently the Dean of Art and design at West Valley College in Silicon Valley and is passionate about ensuring that education for creatives is welcoming and accessible to everyone. I'm sure everyone listening has an idea that in the U.S. education is incredibly expensive and then adding a art education on top of that is even more debilitating. It is not accessible to most people. So this conversation is really, really important and Shannon was someone I was incredibly lucky to meet I was a freshman at Pratt many years ago, and I was lucky that our time overlapped so that she could relay some of her philosophy on me. And I was a young fashion student, pretty unhappy in the program, feeling like it wasn't quite for me. And I was very, very nervous about that because I'd wanted to be that since I was probably seven years old, and I had no idea where I wanted to go next. And Shannon was the person that said to me, essentially that, you know, there are people you can look at herself as included in that, that formed their careers based on passion, based on the things they really believed in, and that there was a community out there of people who were forging their own way and creating their own path and making these really meaningful careers that there was really no blueprint for, but that the world really, really needed. So Shannon is very much one of those people, and I really, really look up to her and I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoy knowing Shannon. So without further ado, this is Shannon Price. First, I'd love for you, Shannon, to just tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about your background and how you became first interested in the fashion universe. You know, it's been a lifelong interest. I think that it's taken different directions. When I was in high school, I was a total theater nerd and used to do Renaissance fairs and Dickens fairs and make make all my own costumes and was always into clothing and fashion from a personal perspective as a way to communicate about identity. So I was a pretty, let's say, you know, extravagant kind of punk rocker in high school and liked to do all the kind of sartorial things that you get to do to place yourself within a certain culture and time. It was the 80s, so that was, you know, fun. But 
after that, I actually didn't go straight into college and I worked in the music industry all through the 90s. What a time. Yeah, it was a great time to be in the music industry. Yeah, <laughs> especially in Northern California, because there, you know, a lot of good music was coming out. But towards the end of that, I actually decided to go back to college and was sort of chipping away at some general ed stuff at San Francisco State and had started stage managing at Slims, which was kind of like the opposite of what I had been doing, which was tour managing bands. So instead of playing in a different city and a different club every night with the same band, I was doing a different band every night at the same club in the same city. So it was kind of, you know, the flip side of the other. But like I said, I worked with a lot of local bands and one of the bands had a video director and producer who they were working with a lot, who was just kind of coming up. And he just sort of out of the blue had tapped me and was like, you know, we really need somebody to do our styling and costume design for the videos. And I've always really appreciated the way that you dress and your take and interest in fashion and everything. So I just started doing that for some local bands, you know, some of which people have heard of now, like Green Day and stuff like that. But what that got me into, right, was research and how, you know, how to be good at a job like that, right? You needed to really know what you were talking about because sometimes they wanted historic references and they wanted other kind of references. And, you know, that opened my eyes up to like this world of academia and fashion. At the same time, I was discovering, right, that there were museums in New York, you know, dedicated to this. And, you know, so that was always very inspiring. And I was finishing a degree in anthropology at UC Berkeley and kind of carved out my own little minor in art history and costume history. Like nobody else was interested in that. So I had to work with the art history and the costume theater department to kind of build this little minor so that I felt felt like I could study costume history. Basically what they did was they just gave me like, this is back in the day before digital presentations and stuff. They gave me binders and binders and binders of slides. And I sat in a dark room and like taught myself fashion history. After that, you know, that's when I kind of got serious about it. And I applied to what at that point was like the only place where you could get a graduate degree in fashion history, which is was NYU. And I had lived in New York in the late 80s and always knew that I wanted to go back to New York. So for me, it was like a good excuse to, to find back there. And then, yeah, and then that sort of kicked off my 20 years in field in New York that just kind of progressed. That's the perfect segue into my next question, which is you've held a lot of incredible positions. For people listening, be it 12 years at the Costume Institute at the Met or scholarly positions between Pratt and Parsons New School. In all of these different roles, is there a standout project you feel really proud of? Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's, at each place, there's lots of standout projects. You know, I mean, I think my time at the Met was amazing in a million ways, mostly because I was very honored to be able to be Andrew Bolton's right hand for all that time. And, you know, we really work well as a creative team together. And also just, I was able to, at the same time, create 
order and structure in a department that for years had been really unorganized and disorderly. So one of the things that I always try to do at any institution is that I'm I'm 100% devoted to the creative process and the mission of the institution, but you can't do any of that if there's just total chaos organizationally (laughs) and your employees are miserable because they have to work too much because everything's so chaotic. When I first got there, a lot of the things I did was about creating systems and structure so that we could really get to the meat of the creative mission that we were trying to reach, right? So that was part of it. And that's where like the administrative part of me comes in. But I really don't feel like you can be free creatively without that. Totally agree with that. I don't want to cut you off too far, but to interject, you're reminding me of one of the reasons why I even came to you and met you in the first place and why it was so impactful talking to you. I'm just having like a wave flashback to many years ago where I was in the fashion department, fairly miserable at Pratt, Uh, even though it was an incredible program. I was just, it wasn't feeling like it was fitting me for some reason at 19. And I remember we sat down and had a conversation and you said to me, well, I studied anthropology and I ended up in this little almost sort of create your own major. We sort of have something like that here. It's very new called critical and visual studies. And that's how I ended up essentially writing my own syllabus and doing half fine art, essentially minoring in creative writing and then getting to talk about this very specific research topic that I was working on. And it was a very, very unique experience. And I really credit that to that one conversation with you because it gave me the confidence to sort of pave my own way, even though I didn't, and in some ways still don't know where it's all going to lead. Yeah, of course. And I, I mean, I advocate that for everybody, like your education is your education and it's not about the job at the end, right? It's about teaching yourself how to think critically and think about the things that you want to think about and impact the things that you want to impact. So I appreciate you reminding me of that conversation. In any case, so there were a lot of things at the Met that I'm really proud of. One of the first projects I started working on, and it literally didn't wrap up until I left, was the online database access, complete cataloging, and complete imaging of the entire collection. That was something that when I got there, I was really involved in, and then I became kind of more and more macro organizer of it because we had to build a team and everything like that. But, you know, that was a really big deal. And I mean, now everybody has everything online, but when I got there in 2000, you know, nothing is online, you know, and these are collections that have never been documented like that, you know, so it took an army. And then I think the other, the you know, the one, you know, I, I was able to do a, a small exhibition there with some of my colleagues and I'm proud of that, the wild exhibition. But I think the the most meaningful exhibition to me really was the Alexander McQueen exhibit you know, McQueen was somebody that Andrew and I had always been really passionate about. The Met never did shows on living designers. So we included him as many shows as we could, but we knew we were like never going to be able to do a McQueen show. And so it was very bittersweet when he passed away. And then we were like, oh, I guess we get to do our McQueen show now, you know, which is like really brutal. But the thing that was amazing about it was that his team which has been his creative team for, you know, decades. You know, he committed suicide. It was all very sudden. And, you know, as you know, creative teams, especially in fashion, right, they're just driven by this calendar of creative output and it's all very intense and everybody's like really addicted to the adrenaline. And what was able to happen really is that we included all of his creatives in our process. And so they were able to put all of that energy into exhibition. 
I imagine that kind of saved them a little bit. I mean, I just think it was very cathartic for everybody. You know, we had people who worked on all his stage stuff and we had his hairdresser and we had, you know, we just, we brought everybody in and listened and worked with everybody. I think that it's part of the reason why that show was so successful is because you could just feel the intensity and the love and the care that it was all done with. And then to have the public engage with it so much to the point that like the museum had to keep their doors open till all hours of the night, just so that everybody could see it. You know, that had never happened before. And Andrew and I would just walk the lines of the, you know, of the people waiting to come in just because it was so much fun. It was like much closer to my music industry days than curating at the Met had ever been. You know, it was just very active and very alive and people were really passionate about it. And so it just, you know, it was meaningful because of that. And to be honest, it was one of the last big shows that I did there before I left. And then, you know, Pratt, I absolutely loved Pratt. A lot of the things I did there that were important were really bureaucratic. They were about helping the dean split the schools from Martin Design and moving the Pratt Design show back to Brooklyn, which was a really big deal and had saved the school a lot of money and also was much more successful. But we were getting a lot of pushback about that because this was like nobody wanted to believe us that Brooklyn was like now the center of the universe. And now it's more expensive to live in Brooklyn than Manhattan. Right. And, you know, I was just telling them, I'm like, all the creatives that you want to come see this show, they live in Brooklyn, like they don't live in Manhattan. So there was that. And then at Parsons, you know, what was really impactful for me at Parsons was one and one of the reasons why I left Pratt to go to Parsons is because they were really engaging with sustainability and fashion and systems thinking around fashion in a way that Pratt really wasn't. And I didn't think I was going to get to emphasize at Pratt in the way. And plus, I was an assistant dean. I wasn't really in the fashion department anymore. And at Parsons, I was able to work with a really brilliant professor there named Brendan McCarthy, who taught me everything I know really about systems thinking, not just in fashion, but in design and in business. And he and I did so many fun and amazing projects that I could have never imagined that they were going like in the direction that they were going in, you know? So I was director of partnerships. So I would bring people together and then I would work with Brendan, like, what can we do? These are what's going on. And like, let's get an idea that's good. An example of one of the projects that I'm most proud of is that I had Hela, who's a textile manufacturer and the UNFPA, right? Which is the women's health branch of the UN. They were some of the first people that I had sort of met with at Parsons that were looking for partnerships. And of course, you don't know how it's going to fit together. And they had nothing to do with each other. But what happened was Hala had a new wicking technology textile that they wanted us to help them figure out what to do with. And UN had this issue in some of their countries that they work with around women's and girls' issues around menstruation and it's stopping them from going to school and stopping them from working and all of these different things. And so I brought Brendan in and we he worked with the students to help design with Hala's textile a wicking underwear kind of in the vein of like thinks or something. But it had to be much more compact and much more kind of cross user friendly, right? Because we wanted it to be life cycle. We wanted it to be like from menstruation through like incontinence, basically, you know, and and everything, right? And also they have big problems with waste and recycling from pads and stuff in these countries. It's environmental impact, it's social impact. And so 
over the two years, it was a really long project. We did lots of presentations to the UN and, you know, the students designed it. We got it approved. We had Hala manufactured it. And at the end of the day, it ended up being included in refugee kits that the UNFPA would give to girls and mothers at these camps. So it was really kind of like the ideal systems thinking, you know, multi-partner. That was the kind of project you were hungry for. Yeah. Like, and I just love those kind of projects and they don't come, they don't really, you know, they don't come. They're few and far between. Yeah. And, you know, and to be able to have it actually reach some kind of conclusion and success. So that was sort of long-winded. No, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's cool to see also your thought process as you were transitioning from one space to another, because they're all very different and you take something with you each time, but It's also hard to, and I I have other questions I want to ask first before I dive into this, but just to address it, it is hard to sometimes justify in your mind, did I leave that place at the right time? What if I could have worked on this additional project? It's very hard. And I'll tell you, leaving the Met was one of the hardest things I ever done. Like it was like getting a divorce. Like Andrew and I were just in tears about it. It's a big decision. Yeah, it was a big decision. But for me, it was the right decision. I had a family to raise and the Met was far away from Brooklyn. And also, I had felt like I had gone as far as I could there and continuing to stay. And I don't I don't mean this to come across as like I think I'm selfless because I'm not. But continuing to stay was blocking the team that I had built from taking on more responsibility and moving up in their careers. And these were girls and women that I had brought in because they're genius and they're brilliant and they also deserve to grow in their career. And you grow slowly at the Met, you know? So it's like, I just kind of felt like, I don't know, like I'm okay to get out of the way now. And also I really wanted to stop looking backward and look forward a little bit in fashion and figure out how I could have some impact on like future stuff. And I definitely want to address that. That's definitely going to be a big part of this interview. But first, I'd love to bring in, I read this great interview you did with fashion educator Kim Jenkins, who I met also at Pratt can't remember if it was through you or Alex or somebody, but it was a small family for sure. But in it, you said, not only is there nothing that will drive you to go to graduate school like a retail job, but also I cannot underscore enough how much you learn about fashion and how good it is for one's work ethic to simply do what is required of you. Any work experience is good and will help you in your future professional work. Do not underestimate it, think it's irrelevant, or that you are too good to do it. And I think this is such an important point for people, especially those forging their own path, to remember. Like so much of your career is just about just going for it and following the paths that feel interesting to you. And you don't always know where they're going to lead similarly to the major conversation and studying in school. And for those listening, I don't know what that small beeping noise is. Yeah, I I was trying to see if it was mine, but... It might be mine, but if we can't edit it out, I'm just going to apologize to those listening because this is all part of it. (laughs) So I could be dinging from work emails. I have no idea. But going back to what I was saying is this idea that so much of building a career is just going for it and you just have to sort of follow what feels good to you in some way. But as you're going through it, it takes an immense amount of courage. 
it is easier said than done. But as you're going through it, it's terrifying. It's, you know, you don't exactly know where you're going to end up. It takes a village. So you don't know when you're going to find your people. Everyone finds them hopefully eventually, since we all know it just takes a few people to believe. Well, and sometimes you have to leave your people. Like the Met was my people. And I haven't had that since I left there, but that didn't mean I still, I still had to go. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be brave. It takes a lot of bravery, but I'm curious how you kept such a strong attitude in the early days as you were trying to figure out what your career was going to look like, or was it just this sort of natural, you let this kind of thing develop naturally? No, it wasn't natural. I mean, I, you know, I worked a lot in retail when I was in college and I worked in retail when I moved to New York, but like quick side story, you never know what's going to happen even at a job that you think is crazy because I like, so I was working retail and was managing the Anasui downtown New York in Soho. And you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about people, you learn about retail, you learn about all kinds of stuff. You learn about trends, you learn about buying all kinds of stuff, budgeting, all of those things are important. Customer service, everything. At the time we were all girls, but there was a sales girl there named Julie Lay. And we had a blast together. We had fun Christmas parties. Everything was, you know, we were young and having a good time, right? Literally 15 years later, while I'm at the Met, she walks in one day. She's our new costume history librarian. She had gone to library school. She had done all this stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, Julie, you know, so and you end up in the right place. And, you know, it was so fun to work with her all those years at the Met, you know, and, um, and just to have her come back in my life in this like crazy way, you know, and it was really a total surprise. I hadn't seen her in like 10 years, you know. For me, it was always, it's not like it was methodical, but when I had an opportunity or an idea, I always really went for it. Like when I moved to New York, I went to the NYU program because they had a relationship with the Met and I knew I wanted to work at the Met. And then one of the things that I did was tons of internships, which I always recommend everybody to do. So like before I left California, I did an internship at the Oakland Museum. Then I spent the summer interning at the Smithsonian Museum costume collection. And then when I moved to New York and I started working retail and started doing graduate school at NYU, I was looking for another internship. I had found out through a friend of a friend, sort of a family member, that Giorgio Armani was doing a show at the Guggenheim and it was all very on the down low. It hadn't been announced yet. And this was way back in the day. So I faxed the curatorial office at the Guggenheim and was like, I know you guys are doing an Armani show and I know nobody knows, but I really want to intern on that show. And they were so like amazed that I knew that they were doing the show that they were just like, okay, you know, come on in. Right. So for a year I got paid, you know, to like learn an incredible amount on working on a fashion show. Harold Coda was not back at the Met at that time. He was doing the show. So I think my lesson from that was, and what I tell people to take from that, as far as I'm concerned, is to just like be bold. You don't get very far by not putting yourself out there. The worst that can happen is they're going to say no. And then whatever, you're right back where you started. It doesn't matter. Right. Even in the smallest ways, when even when, as an example, when I was starting this podcast project, it's like, who cares how many people listen to this podcast project? I was still nervous if even five people listened to it. And now we have over people in, I think, 60 countries listening to it. 
I have no idea how many people that is. It could be one in every country, but (laughs) you know, it still took me sort of having all these hiccups. Like even this beeping noise is an example. Like I'm happy in some way that that's happening because it's all part of this conversation where you start a new thing. It's scary. Even if it feels like it shouldn't matter, the small, seemingly insignificant project, But because I had moments where I had to get over the sound of hearing my own voice, or what if this messes up, or what if people break up over Zoom, which happens all the time if somebody's in New Delhi, India, or I'm here, and it seems like it's getting worse, right? (laughs) It does. If I was on my home computer, I would say it's notifications, but I'm on my work computer, so it's really, I can't, I have no idea what it is. Well, it's kind of comical that it's happening during this conversation, but I definitely feel that getting over just the life mistakes or the moments, I don't even want to call them mistakes, just like the moments in life where things don't go perfectly because they literally never do. I feel like it almost relates to the age conversation, not to veer off too much, but I feel like I personally really look forward to being a 60-year-old woman one day and feeling like I just don't care as much about what people think about me. And I imagine that's really refreshing. Yeah. And I can speak from experience. Like, yeah, in your 50s, you start giving very few fucks. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, as a 29 year old, I'm like, I feel like I'm just clawing my way out of this insane decade of being in your 20s where every miserable thing happens, every great thing happens. It's just, it's such an intense emotional decade. And I'm just excited for being able to go with the flow a little more in my career, but also in just in every aspect of my life. It's something that draws me so much to a story like yours. There's no one way. Like you said, it's it's really should be tailored to the person because that person has their individual path to carve. And that's what's so beautiful about that kind of genuine trajectory that creates much bigger, broader, warmer projects. And to move that that into sustainability and genuineness and transparency in our industry. I feel like I can go back and forth between my questions, but you have a very big voice in sustainability and fashion. And I wanted to ask you something about sort of moving forward with what I'll call cultural intelligence and intention. And it's really exciting to see brands like Margaret Burton, who's a Pratt graduate, taking clothes that already existed and turning them into something new, the new old, something that is a theme that has come up in these episodes before. We love the new old. And actually, when I started in school, they said, steal everything. They said this in the fashion department. And I remember feeling like as a 19-year-old, like, what? (laughs) That's a really crazy piece of advice. Who said that? (laughs) And now, you know, 10 years later, I'm just like, of course, that's exactly the point. You steal everything, but then you make it your own. It's the new old. So I'm curious about, you know, we have these great brands like Margaret Burton's brand that are doing these great things for sustainability. But that being said, I know there's a lot more to the picture that we should be thinking about to set these changes in motion. And can you speak to a little bit about what you've been working on, what you foresee those changes to be, and sort of what we can do? Honestly, it's tough. There's so much to do. Everybody can only do what they can do and so much, you know. So I am not a purist by any stretch of the imagination. I feel like every brand, every person, you should be thinking about it. You should be doing something, but you don't have to be doing everything. Important to to say. Yeah, because I think some people 
get discouraged or don't want to start a new line or a new project or something because they want it to be like perfectly sustainable. And it's just not. No, that's preachiness when it's perfect. But also it's setting themselves up for disappointment and failure. And like everybody, yeah, just has to make the impact that they are capable of making. Now, I think everybody should be thinking about making some sort of impact. I don't think we should be supporting and advocating for fast fashion and stuff in the way that we do, because that's like negative impact, right? That's like reverse reversing any changes that everybody who buys vintage is doing. So I can tell you what I'm doing and what I think is important. The impact that I feel like I can have is that I, it's, it's the reason why I moved into education, right? Because I feel like if you want to change an industry, you have to impact the future workers in that industry, right? So where, where are they? They are, they're trained in the universities and the, in the, in the higher education system. And for me, that also includes diversifying the industry. Because that's a very small group of people. We know that. Yeah, it's all very interconnected. So when I moved to California, we moved right before the pandemic. And like everybody else, I had a couple years to really think about what I wanted to be doing next. Luckily, my husband was working from home and we weren't devastated economically the way that a lot of people were. In California, everybody has extra houses on their property. So we were able to rent out a house, you know, our apartment and get some income that way. And I was teaching fashion history online for the Academy of Art University and homeschooling my daughter and just thinking about like what I wanted to do next. And I'm also a very firm believer in manifesting. It sounds really like hokey pokey, but I do think that if you think about things enough, then you can like bring them in your life. You have to be a little bit obsessive in this life. Yeah. So over those couple of years, I had, you know, the, the museum and the higher education landscape and art and design are very different in Northern California. You know, it's one of the reasons why I left home in the first place, right? So I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, maybe I'm going to have to get into something else, work into some other kind of cultural organization or something. Like I was just trying to be open-minded, like when it's time to get back to work, like, you know, I'm going to have to be open-minded. But in the back of my head, I had sort of started thinking, you know, even though I loved Pratt and I loved Parsons, what I didn't like about them was that they're obviously like exclusive by design, right? They're just too expensive. They're in expensive cities, you know, and they're in bed with the industry in a way that is really maladaptive. So I just thought, you know, in a perfect world, like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a really strong art and design program at like a community college or something where it could be affordable? My mom's a professor at a community college and she used to teach at Penn and she she likes it far better. Yeah. You know, they're amazing institutions. And so lo and behold, when I started looking for work, they were looking for a dean of art and design at West Valley Community College in Silicon Valley. It's called the Silker School of Art and Design. And so that's where I am now. And, you know, it really just ticked a lot of boxes about access to education, access to art and design education. If we want to change these industries, it can't cost you a quarter million dollars to get your degree. You're certainly not going to make that back either. You're not. And also self-selects for people and their values, right? So now that I'm here, you know, one of the things, if we're talking about fashion, but I'm also talking about design, you know, all the fields, I I oversee performing arts, visual arts, and all the design disciplines. One of the things that, you know, that I'm doing is 
we are, you know, completely rewriting all the fashion curriculum here to be sustainably and systems thinking aligned, which literally does not exist at any community college in this country. You know, and we're in Northern California, so we're directly connected to Levi's, to Everlane, to Gap, to Old Navy, you know, to all of those, all of those big brands and a lot of smaller sustainable brands that choose to, to locate themselves here. So my approach has been always through higher education. Like, I feel like the industry needs to change. And if you're, you know, we have to graduate students who are trained to think critically about their industries and their work and also trained technically in how to source sustainably, pattern sustainably, all of the things that you need to do. So it's kind of trying to work at it on a bunch of different levels and just make sure that the industry is populated by people who have those values and are trained to be able to execute those values. We need a new army of equally educated people just to take over the system. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to graduate an army, (laughs) but, you know, you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, you've clearly mentored a lot of people. You've knowingly or unknowingly mentored me. I know you've done it, it being in education to many, many, many other people. And we know it takes a village. And I know you have a family. And if this is not too personal, the balance of work life. And being so invested in your work life and being so passionate about your work life and then having a family. How do you balance that? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody balances it perfectly. I think that I was lucky to have a supportive husband who would pick up a lot of slack and really has been like a serious partner. Like, he cooks, he cleans, he doesn't mind picking up the kids. Like there was never a distribution of labor issue in our family, right? But we also were both, I mean, at the Met, I wasn't making very good money. (laughs) But as we moved up in our careers, you know, you're making better money, you can get babysitters, you can get somebody to pick your kid up, you can pay for camps, you know, and all of those things make a big difference. You know, we have also, we didn't have family in New York, but we had a big extended friend community. And, you know, we only have one child. I don't know how people do it with more. But, you know, I also was never afraid to just take her places with me. You know, I would take her to work. I would take, you know, she knew all of my colleagues and friends and she was exposed to all of that. So I think that everybody has their own balance, right? So if it's important to you, to have a balance. You know, I think in my younger years, before I had my daughter, I had no balance in my life at all. Like I worked constantly, but there's nothing like having kids that will make you recalibrate your life. And I've heard that time and time again. Absolutely. Because that can really be a big factor in whether you decide to stay in a job or not, depending what kind of person you are. Not every employer is like, there for that. I was lucky that Andrew Bolton was incredibly supportive. I was the first Costume Institute employee who took maternity leave and came back. Everybody else takes maternity leave and then they never came back to work because they were just so stressed out about being able to do it. But I came back. I had a team to lead. But because I had spent 10 years getting the place organized and creating systems and mentoring and elevating and training. Everybody trusted them. I knew they could do it while I took my six months off. I worked really hard to make sure that they felt confident, had the tools, 
had the trust of the, you know, of the curators and felt that they were in control. So that when I left, it wasn't like everybody's just like coming to me all the time. I never wanted to be that person where like, I'm a hoarder of information so that everybody just needs me and I'm invaluable. Like, I just think that's the wrong approach, you know, like, because I, for many years built our department like that, when I went on maternity leave, everything was really smooth and great because they were all perfectly prepared to do it. What I'm hearing is the balance takes a lot of prep work. It takes tons and tons of prep work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when I came back and my position changed a little bit when I came back, but like having created an organization that was well running and structured and intentionally creating life balance there even before I had my kid so that when I came back, I was just like at five, I at my kid. Like that's what happens. And the thing that I'm proud of too, is that now I have women who I hired and trained and were able to elevate their positions there after I left, who've been able to have kids go on maternity leave and come back to that institution, which is a important for the institution to be able to to have that happen. You know, I even have one, she's having her second kid now, you know, and organizations have to be invested in creating the space and the structure for people to be able to find their balance. After the pandemic, I think most people are just like, if their company is not going to do that for them, like they'll go find another job. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think it's wonderful. It's hard for the employers, but it's wonderful for everyone at the end because you're also, the companies that are hiring people are also going to retain people for longer. Absolutely. And, you know, people aren't going to hop around as they do in my generation once every year because they take a job and then they realize, oh, there's no quality of life here. Bye then they have to train a new person. So it really doesn't benefit anybody. Going back to the it takes a village thing, you had also said in the that same interview with Kim Jenkins, which I thought was great. And you said relationships are the most important thing. And again, like it out of context, it sounds kind of like oversimplified. But in the context of the interview and everything we're talking about, it's really true. Like if we don't have the ability to strengthen individual relationships, both in our workplace and in a balanced way in our personal family life. It's like, what's it all for? Yeah. And I think what what I was talking about too with that, when I was saying that was that, and this is connected to bringing your full self and your authenticity right to your job and feeling like safe to do that. I I haven't always felt safe doing that, but I've done it nonetheless because I'm I don't know if it's like some kind of disorder I have, but like, I'm just unable to filter myself. I have that too. I have that too. And I'm really insecure about it. I feel the same way. I feel like I, I overshare. I over, like I'm chronic overshare, but it's also how I make friends. It's also how I connect with people. Like, absolutely. It's how you gain trust with people, like sincere, honest trust. And I think what I what I was getting to when I was saying that was that at the Met, one of the reasons why I was very successful there was because I had very good relationships at all levels above me and at all levels below me and was able to have strong, trusting, working relationships that for lack of a better way to say it, were like greased wheels when you needed them to be greased. You know, like 
the Met projects were massive, massive, multi-million dollar exhibitions, publications, parties, all this stuff, you know, working with all kinds of private sector partners. And it was always very, very complicated. And it was my desire to have authentic relationships in the museum and out of the museum with our partners that made a lot of what we could do possible because they trust you and you've shown them that you, you know, that you do what you say you're going to do and that you have their interests in mind, even when it doesn't turn out the way that they want it. They trust that you tried or were advocating for them. You know, that's really what I was meeting about relationships because I think people underestimate that and they also underestimate what bringing your authentic self, the value that that has in building those relationships. Completely. I feel like the wrongest phrase that I've ever grown up with is nice guys finish last. I don't agree with that at all. And it's not the experience I've had. Well, I'm not saying that I was always nice, (laughs) but I was always honest and I was always straightforward. Yeah. I don't think that nice guys finish last, but I also don't think it's always about being nice. Sometimes it's about being the a-hole, but letting people know that like, you're still doing your best, but it's just not going to go your way. Exactly. It takes bravery to be authentic. And that's whether it relates to policy change, if we're talking about sustainability or educating a group of an entire generation of people who never had access to this kind of education or changing the textbooks as you are in some way in the entire curriculum to make sure that it includes entirely new rhetoric and ways of thinking. Like all of these things are exhausting. And take a person like you who has a lot of drive and a lot of care and the ability to be organizational and systematic. You know, I really appreciate what you do and what you've done for so many people and what you continue to do. And on that note, we have a recurring question we always ask, which is more lighthearted because we always, you know, go into the thick of it and then pull back out into our normal day. And that's what did you want to be when you were a kid? And what do you want to be in five years imagining yourself in the future? I wanted to be a rockette. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I was a dancer, like from when I was really young, you know, all through high school, I had to quit because of an injury. But yeah, I wanted to be a rockette when I was little. And then later I wanted to be a fly girl, but I never got to be any of that. (laughs) One day. One day I will be a fly girl. Most people aren't even going to know what that reference is. It's okay. Jennifer Lopez was a fly girl. Love her. Um, And what do I want to be in five years? I want to be close to retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's terrible to say, but like, I don't want to work forever. I'm not one of those kind of people. I love my job and I love what I do. And I want, I want to be able to retire, enjoy my life not wait till late to do that. But with knowing that I had had that I had some impact, you know, like I I want to leave knowing I've made a mark here. It doesn't need to be like some global mark. I don't care if everybody knows my name, but you know what I mean? It's like, I, I want to be able to say like, I know I did these like good things along the way that have impacted people or impacted an industry that I've like been connected to my whole life and be able to put my finger on what that looks like and really be able to articulate it. And then I just want to retire and travel. And live your life. And live my life. I know it feels differently internally, but I can say from an external perspective, you have changed the lives of a lot of people. And I know you continue to do that. And that being said, are there any other messages you'd like to get out there before we wrap this up and call it a day? Anything we haven't covered that you'd want to address? I feel like we covered a lot. Yeah, we've covered a lot. 
<laughs> We've covered a lot. I don't think so. I just, I appreciate the effort you're, that you're doing in this podcast to kind of just get like different stories out there because it's one of the things that when I'm talking to students and maybe we even have this conversation, right? But like when I'm talking to students or giving a presentation or just a one-on-one or something, I always try to make everybody feel comfortable in like whatever path it is that's happening for them. Like it's fine. You don't have to go to the Ivy League school. You don't have to get a job right away. If you want to take your year off, take your year off. Like everybody needs to know themselves well enough to know what they need. And again, I think the pandemic has helped a lot of people with this. Like just to say like, that's a no. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like giving people the strength to say that, which I think is amazing because it's a very difficult thing to do. And there's a lot of pressures from society and parents and all kinds of stuff. And I, you know, I love working with people in their like late teens and 20s and when they're all so uncertain about where they're going and what they're doing and just to be able to say like you're going to be fine don't worry about your path seek advice and yeah and I know you want to find your success and find your path but like just trust that you will get there like you have to put your effort into it but that if your pathway looks different than somebody else's it's fine And there's a million ways to get to where you want to go. And sometimes you're like getting somewhere and you end up somewhere and you didn't even know that that's where you wanted to be. And now it's like the best place ever, you know? So it's like, you can't know everything all the time. You can't know what ramifications the choices you're making have. Right. Be Socratic. You don't know anything until you admit you know nothing. Right. But again, easier said than done, because in our 20s, we like to think we know everything but we really know nothing. (laughs) Best part of being 20. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for doing this. This was great. Well, thank you for having me, Jenny. It was very good to talk to you again and hear about what you're doing and congratulations on the podcast and everything else. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ongoingness with the innovative force of nature, Shannon Price. Want to reach out? Find us on the gram at ongoingnesspod or online at anchor.fm slash ongoingness. As always, a big thanks to Eric Enriquez who produced the music for our pod and to Shortstack New York where it was recorded. Additional thanks goes to our sound editor, Mahogany Cheetah. And as usual, thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.